Mouse to Mouse, Episode 5, All Who Come to This Happy Place. So there we were, tickets now in hand, eagerly approaching the famous entrance tunnel below the Main Street Railroad Station. And while my body was in a hurry to get inside, a strange thing began to happen to my mind. After years of showing students the DVD of the live Disneyland opening day ABC telecast as part of the introductory lecture for my Disney course, I found myself gazing upon the very same concourse where Art Linkletter began his excited commentary on the E.P. Ripley coming down the track, with Walt Disney at the controls. For a moment, the Technicolor sensory overload that always accompanies entry into a Disney park was becalmed, and before me, in black and white, was a portal back to an unseasonably hot Sunday in July of 1955. Art Linkletter was standing there, introducing his family, and then handing over to a young movie star by the name of Ronald Reagan, whatever happened to him, who was clearly just as mesmerised by the sight that confronted him, of a place the like of which nobody had ever seen before. But no, I was mistaken. One man had seen it. Not just while it was being constructed, but in detailed plan in his mind, several years before, at a time when nobody else, not even his brother, really believed that it could be realised. With a start, I was jerked out of my reverie by my son pulling at my hand, but somehow that man was still standing there, on the footplate of the steam locomotive, gazing out over the dream that became a reality in a park that bore his name. We, of course, were here to have fun, as he always hoped that his guests would, but a part of me was here to see if I could find him in Disneyland, and then, over the coming month, look out for fleeting glances of his shadow all the way across America. Right now, the pressing business of getting onto Main Street and attempting to soak up as much pixie dust as we could was combining with childish enthusiasm and the nervous energy of the first steps on a huge adventure to rid us of the sleep deprivation that we had endured the night before. And, as we emerged from the tunnel into the morning sun of Town Square, all of our eyes widened as Disneyland opened up, just as it had for those first visitors 60 years before. In the previous chapter, I alluded to how much it meant to Sarah and I to bring our own children to Disneyland, having taken them so many times to the Florida resort. But while I knew intellectually that this would invoke a range of emotions, I wasn't really prepared for just how emotional I would feel when I was actually walking its streets. I don't know if this is a universal characteristic of parenthood, but I have certainly become more prone to sentimentality since both of my kids were born. I routinely look at them while they sleep, partly, as all parents will know, because this is the only time they stop generating noise, and let my mind wander back to a time when they were helpless babes in arms, and I know instinctively how Woody and Buzz felt in Toy Story when they realised that they were no longer their child's favourite plaything. So it was here that as I saw Disneyland through their eyes, I also saw myself at their age, discovering this magical place in that oversized picture book in my primary school library, 5,000 miles and the best part of 40 years ago. I can't really explain why I was so emotional, but for most of that first day, it felt like there was, just as Walt had observed when outlining his storytelling philosophy, at least the potential of a tear, disguised by my very manly sunglasses, you understand, behind every smile. My best guess about why I felt this way was that somehow, just by virtue of its direct connection to Walt Disney, this park triggered in me a kind of yearning nostalgia for a time long before I was born. Indeed, before my parents had even met. 
Just as a later custodian of the company, Michael Eisner suggested of his pet park, Disney MGM Studios, for me, as steeped in Disney honor as I have become, Disneyland therefore represented a past that never was and always will be. As the day wore on, the more we marvelled at the 21st century technological wonders of the happiest place on earth, and make no mistake, Disneyland is awash with such wonders, the more it became apparent that behind so many of them lay a trail of breadcrumbs that led all the way back to a man on a bench in Griffith Park, watching his daughters ride the carousel. For one thing, the bench itself is right there in the foyer of the opera house. I'm not entirely sure that my children understood why Daddy wanted to stand for such a long time just looking at a park bench, but stand I did, almost frozen to the spot by an object that for me might just as well have been the Ark of the Covenant. Just before we had left on this quest, I read a novel by an author called Kelly Ryan Johns entitled Voyageers, the Great Storyteller about a group of orphan children who were chosen to become part of a secret society that lived in a hidden realm behind the facades of Main Street USA in Disneyland. In this story, the bench assumed a mystical force that allowed the greatest storyteller of all, a magically resurrected Walt Disney, to restore and remake a Disneyland that had fallen into rack and ruin as a result of a series of complex time-travelling events that are far too involved to explain here. The reason I mention this story is not because I am naive enough to take it for fact, but because in a way, the very nature of its elevation of an object as mundane as a park bench, even this park bench, to the level of a powerful mythological symbol, is more or less exactly the way that I, and so many other far more fanatical Disney geeks, related to it. I may have been flippant before with the Ark of the Covenant crack, but let's face it, Was the reverence that I and a host of other people had for this object that had once played host to Walt Disney at the mythical moment when he conceived Disneyland really so different to the way that pilgrims throughout time had gathered to be in the presence of holy relics that purported to have a connection to some saintly figure or the mystery of a miracle? In any sensible touring plan of the park, I am pretty sure that our behaviour of sauntering around Main Street, stopping to enjoy the windows of the Emporium, and getting in line for pictures with all the available characters was about as wrong as it gets. The thing is though, once I managed to get beyond the blind panic stage of fearing that there might be a sight or sound or taste that we could miss by using our time so inefficiently, it quickly dawned on me that these moments spent simply enjoying the exquisite details of Main Street and having fun with the whole family, was probably exactly what constituted Walt's celebrated Eureka moment all those years before. That's not to say that we didn't soon enough join the growing throng of humanity that was funnelling past the hub and straight on into Fantasyland. But we did pause to enjoy some of the differences from what we were used to at the Florida Park. One of my children's biggest hits in that respect was the charming snow-white grotto that frames the eastern end of the moat around Sleeping Beauty Castle. In true Disney style, this little architectural detail has a delightfully playful backstory with one significant difference. It's true. The story begins with a mysterious anonymous gift that arrived at the studio for Walt Disney, postmarked simply from Italy. On inspection, the contents of the package were discovered to be eight of the most exquisite white marble figures of the title characters from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. All perfectly realised, apart from one small issue. They were all exactly the same size. Now, anyone who has seen the movie, and by this point it would probably be harder to find somebody who hasn't, 
will be aware that while our heroine may be a waif-like 14-year-old and perhaps a little young to be marrying a prince, she is most definitely significantly taller than the seven little chaps with whom she sets up home in the forest. Walt, touched by the generous gesture of the unnamed donor, was instantly keen to find a place for the statues at Disneyland, but somewhat perplexed by this problem of scale. As was his way, rather than be defeated by this issue, Walt instead turned to one of his most trusted Imagineers, John Hench. It pains me that I just passed up a perfectly legitimate opportunity to use the word henchman, but it wouldn't set the right tone of reverence for such a legend. Who also puzzled over the conundrum for a while until a light bulb illuminated, presumably with a pleasing cartoon ding, and he set to work creating a solution. What Hench did was to employ the self-same technique that his fellow Imagineers had used to suggest height on the upper floors of Main Street, forced perspective. The dwarfs were placed in a tiered waterfall diorama with a subtly scaled up backdrop that allowed our girl Snow, strategically placed at the top of the falls, to appear perfectly proportioned against her companions of restricted height. The effect must have been pretty successful as replicas of this prototypical secret Santa, complete with John Hench's visual trickery, have since been installed in and adored by guests at both Tokyo and Hong Kong Disneyland's. It's also worth noting that the mysterious benefactor's generosity has continued to be a gift that keeps on giving, as the magical power that attracts every human being on earth to toss their loose change into any body of enclosed ornamental water has been in full effect at the grotto ever since its installation in 1961, and the huge quantity of coins that have resulted from this are periodically collected and donated to children's charities. Once past the grotto, the lure of Fantasyland, in many ways the quintessential essence of Disney, especially when you have two kids, quickly drew us in, and we again found ourselves noting the ways that this version departed from the one we were used to. Scale was, throughout the entire Disneyland resort, one obvious difference, and in Fantasyland, since the huge expansion of recent years in Florida, this factor was even further magnified. But it wasn't just size that made the two places different. Once again, maybe because of its age, although it's only fair to note that the facades that we were gazing upon were largely the product of the 1983 facelift rather than the 1955 original, and its direct connection as reputedly Walt's favourite land, somehow the Disneyland version still felt a little more authentic than that of its younger sibling. I must take a moment at this point to step back into my day job as an academic who analyses the parks through the lenses of various cultural and social theorists and note that the celebrated French philosopher Jean Baudrillard, the chap whose work inspired The Matrix, were he not dead, would almost certainly take me to task for using the word authentic to describe what is, after all, a fantasy simulation of a medieval pan-European town in the heart of Disneyland which itself sits in the largely fantastical realm of Southern California. But I feel confident that those of us who understand the power of Disney will know what I mean. Authentic or not, Fantasyland certainly occupied the vast majority of the dreams and discussions that I had with my children when we were still in the planning and yearning phase of this trip. And now we were standing in it. There were no signs that their excitement had dissipated. Like a pair of characters from Alice in Wonderland, Hell, we even have the accent. They were busily attempting to go in every direction at once, and at least in Tyler's case, trying to convince us that he needed to buy just about every sword, shield, and assorted piece of weaponry that the place had to offer. 
It seemed that then, that after near misses with Mr Toad and Dumbo, it was the uniquely Disneyland and at the same time rather British Alice in Wonderland ride that they eventually selected to be the first attraction of our visit. Unfortunately, it was with the dark part of that designation that our troubles began. As much as I had tried to prepare Tyler for the assorted adventures that he was likely to encounter by showing him pictures, playing him music and even doing the full HD ride-through experience, the thing that these multimedia extravaganzas lack is the sheer intensity of even the most family-friendly ride. So it was then that we emerged from Alice's exploits down the rabbit hole with a child looking like a cross between the Mad Hatter and the Dormouse who was entirely confirmed in a newly found conviction that he was going nowhere near anything like that again. The thing about my son, and to be fair, children in general, is that they are unpredictable creatures, and we of course assumed that after a short while and a little acclimatisation to the pace of life at Disneyland, he would change his tune and settle into enjoying all of the attractions that were appropriate for his age. I think that the reader will probably have a good idea where this is going, and while I really don't want to offer too many spoilers for the remainder of the story, it is safe to say that the words child swap loomed large in the vocabulary of our vacation. That's not to say that he wouldn't ride anything in a way that would have made it easier to plan for, but rather that we would generally have no idea which attractions would fit with his personal criteria until we had waited in line, sometimes right at the moment of embarkation, and this meant two things. Firstly, that Sarah and I really got to ride anything together, while secondly, and this actually worked out very much to her advantage, Annabelle entered a parallel universe in which, for every time she waited in line for an attraction, she actually got to ride it twice. Later on during our time in Anaheim, Tyler did outline his philosophy for which rides were and were not acceptable to him by saying that he would not ride on roller coasters or uppers. This was, however, of only limited use, since, while we were fairly certain about what constituted a roller coaster, even in the mind of a four-year-old, an upper seemed to have been a rather more amorphous concept that centred around a slightly Abbott and Costello-esque logic that such a thing could only really be recognised by his refusal to go on it. Suffice to say that we altered our touring style accordingly, made the best of the situation, and accepted that sometimes travelling with kids is as much about coming to terms with the things that you can't do and of course using them as an extremely effective justification for why you have to come back again in a couple of years, as it is about enjoying those that you can. The rest of the day was spent with us riding the attractions that fit into Tyler's new classification system as a family, and splitting into two teams to ride ones that didn't with the aid of Disney's child swap policy, which in some cases rested upon the seemingly inexhaustible goodwill of the company's greatest asset, the incomparable cast members. As the day wore on, we all began to feel the impact of the distance and the time difference that we had put behind us in the last couple of days. So we took the decision not to stay too late in the park in order to get a relatively early night and be ready to do a full day and take in some of the nighttime extravaganzas the next day. Late in the afternoon, we decided to take in a show called Mickey and the Magical Map at the Fantasyland Theatre. I certainly didn't pick the show out from the guide specifically for this reason, but as we sat and watched it, I realised that it perfectly encapsulated my feelings about the way that the technologically advanced nature of the modern Disneyland hid beneath its surface a strand of DNA that tied it neatly back to the 1950s and to Walt Disney. Like every Disney theme park and theatrical experience, Mickey and the Magical Map was an artfully created assault on the senses that combined high-definition imagery with perfectly choreographed live performance 
and join the two together with a musicality and sense of wonder that plays into the timeless idea of Disney magic. The fact that the story was developed around the character of Mickey Mouse and Yen Sid, do I even need to get you to read it backwards, obviously connected it to Walt. And the fact that the visual imagery of the map bore more than a passing resemblance to the one that Herb Ryman drew during that famous Lost Weekend at the studio that played such an important part in attracting the finance that made the park possible simply underlines this lineage. It was, however, the point at which Yensid said to Mickey that it, the map, will never be completed as long as there is imagination in the world that had me and the vast majority of our fellow audience members up off our seats applauding like lunatics. For, as I am sure most of you know, this was effectively a direct quote from Walt Disney about the very park in which we were now seated. And there it was. Right in the middle of such a technologically complex and visually hugely impressive piece of theatre, the thing that resonated with the guests, just as it had 60 years before, just as it always has, was the core idea of one man to build a place where dreams could come true and where families could chase them together. <laughs>